Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and in this episode I have a very special guest. I am joined by Ingu Kang, who is a critic for The Hollywood Reporter. She is insanely smart and super funny. She's also a Bay Area-based critic like me, and I feel like every time I'd see her at a screening or an event, the first thing we would talk about is 90 Day Fiancé, so she is here to talk about 90 Day Fiance. If you're unfamiliar with the show, it's been airing on TLC since 2014, and they describe it as 90 Day Fiance offers a unique look into the world of international dating and matrimony. Using a unique 90 Day Fiance visa, the K1 visa, the foreigners will travel to the US to live with their overseas partners for the first time. The couples must marry before their visas expire in 90 days, or the visiting partner will have to return home. They'll have to overcome language barriers, culture shock, and skeptical friends and family, all with a clock that starts ticking the moment they step foot on US soil. The stakes are incredibly high as these couples are forced to make a life-altering decision, get married or send their international mate home. Basically, it's about couples that feature one American and one non-American, and the original iteration of the show was bringing the non-Americans to the US on this special visa, and like I just said, you only have a limited amount of time to get married in. The show has spawned a variety of variants and spin-offs at this point. I've almost lost track of how many there are. I have been watching since day one. I don't know whether TLC meant for this to be a study in ethnocentrism, but it ended up being that and so we end up talking about that we talk about citizenship privilege and the idea of the declining empire of the united states and the pockets of xenophobia that get revealed by this show but don't worry we also talk about the trashy ridiculousness quick caveat on two things one is we've both watched many seasons of many versions of the show so there are probably a few parts where we mix up the cast or refer to somebody being on the wrong season of something forgive us, but I'm just acknowledging up front. And then the second thing is we comment on some information that doesn't come directly from the show. A lot of it is either informed by the scary dolls of Reddit or potentially from the social media accounts of the actual people who've been on the show. So if you're a purist and only watch the show and aren't familiar with the sort of uh, fandom around it, this might either be confusing or there might be a lot of new information here. And I also want to caveat that we can't vouch for most of the sources unless it's from the, the actual social media accounts of the show participants. Either way, very excited to share our love of 90 Day Fiancé with you all. So here's, we're watching what? What was your first season of 90 Day Fiancé? So I think my first season of 90 Day Fiancé was the first season of The Other Way. Oh. My friend Jason told me that I really needed to get on the show. He couldn't stop watching it. And also it helped that uh, one of the couples, or one half of one of the couples was Korean. Jihoon. Yep. And so I was very curious about where that was going to lead. And I'm really glad I started with The Other Way because it was the first season. You get just like the crazy nonsense of Jenny and Sumit. And you get Paul and Karini, which are like... Oof, they are. Uh... But at the beginning, they were like, fun, right? Quote, unquote. And so like, that's a really stellar cast. And so much of this franchise, the quality of the franchise, depends on the casting. And for that first season, that the casting was really stellar. The fact, I think, that they held off on introducing Jihoon and Devon until the sixth episode or something, I think really speaks to how stacked that cast was. 
I don't even remember that far back. So I I started season one, 90 Day Fiance, regular version, like when the wow. show aired. I don't know how I saw it, but I've seen every episode since of the of the main ones. I don't watch the every pillow talk and every whatever. So I think they had sort of figured out their recipe by the time they got to the other way. And so they knew who great casting people were and therefore really could hit us with those, you know, mega stars. And, and also I think the regular series had gotten a little bit stagnant at that point. And so switching it up and being like, these are people going abroad was a total game changer. Did you go back and watch the original ones or did you then keep going with the other way? I think basically I got into the other way. And then I got into before the 90 days. And then I eventually made my way to the big franchise, which I still think is like one of the weaker iterations of the show, at least for me, because there's so much more potential for creepy behavior when it's a foreigner who is coming to America. Like I think the power dynamic is already really stacked against them. Whereas if it's like a clueless American who is going to another country for the first time, often their first trip out of the US. That's a lot more fun because I think it's easier for me to put myself in the shoes of the American and also laugh at the American for being so stupid. Yeah, the first few seasons had a lot more, I feel like, quasi-predatory couples where it was like an older white guy and a very, very young girl and it felt pretty uncomfortable. And so I think that's part of the reason we keep seeing some of the same couples on these spinoffs is because they're the ones who are not, who did not fall, well, except for maybe Paul and Carini. They are, I I don't know if he's predatory, but he's not, that's a bad situation. He's absolutely predatory. I think when they started quote unquote dating, he was in his early 30s. And she was still a teenager. She was like 19, supposedly. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. That one is a, that's a nightcore. So wait, speaking of them, do you follow any of them outside of the show? Do you follow any social media or read the updates? Or are you, do you strictly stick to the narrative presented within the shows? I'm not generally like a reality TV person. But I think 90 Day is one of those shows where you basically almost have to get into all of like their social media updates because I think what you see is such a artificial version of their lives, which like, sure, that's like every- That's all of television. (laughs) I think in this particular case, part of the entertainment is you can sort of get like a pretty good idea of how much the show artificially curated their lives. And so I'm on 90 Day Fiance Reddit. Like I'm in a Facebook group. I have yet to join an Instagram meme account, but I think that's only because I'm not really on Instagram. And if I was, I would definitely be hitting follow on like every one of those meme accounts. Interesting. I am the opposite. I just sort of watch the show. And then when the season wraps, then I will see what happened after. But as the show is airing, I'm just like my other friend watches and she'll text me, did you see what Paul's doing on Instagram Live? Or did you see that Anfisa's gotten more surgery? And I'm like, is it on the show yet? Then no, I haven't watched it yet. But then once the season wraps, I will go and I will see like, where are they now? Because I do think I want to know, but I also am enjoying the sort of curated storylines that they're feeding us. I think that's a 
storylines are really boring actually on the show but like what what i really enjoy is part of the reason why i feel so invested in all of the ancillary supplementary material of the instagram accounts and like the reddit updates and all of that stuff is that partly i think it's because like the show itself is not that interesting especially with every episode being 90 or 120 minutes it's too many minutes it is too many minutes it's like they don't condense it enough and then I think part of it is that it's always fascinating to me to watch the cast members essentially respond to the ways that they have been framed on the show. Mm. And so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where the cast members, I think in a lot of the cases, have this very oppositional, antagonistic almost relationship to the producers. And so I find that relationship really fascinating. I think that the other thing that I find really fascinating is that based on what I have read, I have no idea if this is true. The cast members of 90 Day Fiance do not get paid all that much. They do not. What I've read is that they get paid something like $1,000 per episode. And this is probably like a billion dollar franchise at this point, right? Like it's incredibly popular. So they don't really get to participate in all of the profit making that the show has. But they do realize that because the show's audience is so humongous, they get to use it as a platform for whatever they want to do. And so they are out there selling poop tea. They're yep. out there doing cameos. I think there is this like slow migration toward OnlyFans. And so I find that whole reality TV alum economy really fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. So I watch a lot of reality TV and, and Jason and I both watch a lot of Bravo. I watch The Bachelorette, not competitively, but I watch it because I cover it. And I, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. And I, I agree with you, these episodes are way too long, but that's all of reality TV, I feel like, right? Most of it is filler. And I think the reason it's such a delightful escape is because I can do other things while watching it. And I can, I know I have two hours or however 90 minutes if I fast forward through commercials to just kind of zone out, but sometimes pay attention. And I think the cadence of it, those pauses maybe are actually part of the things I like, not the pauses, but the pauses in storytelling where it's just total filler are things that I'm starting to enjoy, especially kind of in quarantine where I'm just like, oh, this is so mindless that I really, I get to zone out before my quote work week starts on Monday and chill essentially. But the ecosystem is the most interesting thing about it to me. And the foreign cast members, like the, if it's 90 day regular version, they can't pay the fiancés because they aren't allowed to work here. So it's only the Americans. So I think it also creates this power dynamic. So even though they're only making a thousand dollars an episode, they're still making money on behalf of this. And I think that does sort of create a rift between the two. And there's already a power dynamic, right? Between the two of them, because, you know, if they don't get married, then the person goes back to their country and you can tell some of them are here just for the visa. And so I think it sort of exacerbates the, the drama a little bit and there's an unspoken thing about it. But the, uh, the cameo and the OnlyFans stuff is fascinating to me. And I once went on and looked at their pricing and what they price themselves as. And it is very interesting to see who thinks they're worth what on that platform. And I can only imagine OnlyFans is going to be 10 times worse. I would pay not to see some of them on OnlyFans. <laughs> I think that the other really interesting thing about the OnlyFans, or sorry, the cameo stuff, 
is that if you say buy a cameo by Darcy for like $50, yeah, sure, that $50 is important for to someone like Darcy seems to like not have a job. But if you get a cameo from say Zied who lives in Tunisia mm-hmm. and he prizes himself at, at $35 and he gets, I don't know, half let's say, of that $35. That's like a pretty significant chunk of change if all of those cameos add up. And so I think that's probably really good and also sort of gives them this extra incentive to perform for the camera, right? In order to like be a- Interesting enough to have people buy a cameo, right? And I wonder how much it's impacted the producer's ability to cast for this show, right? Because I feel like the first few seasons, maybe people didn't really know what it was. And so you're still somehow managing to find those people. But now it's like, oh, there are almost active scammers who are participating in this. Like Ed. Oh, God, Ed is so the human thumb. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I hate making fun of him for, you know, his physical appearance, but he was also a dick. (laughs) He was an absolute dick, but he is someone who very clearly came on the show because he wanted to brand himself. And I think he had like stickers up like his face. He had a luggage tag of his face. Yeah. And so it's so interesting to me because I think that the most recent episode of like the OG 90s fiance, so like Ed and that dude from Australia who's like Ash. Yeah, Ash, Ash with the crazy eyes. Which he says he, because he might have Graves disease. I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ash the sexist though, that he is. He doesn't have yeah. any excuses there. <laughs> And someone like Blake, who wanted to have a music career, mm-hmm. maybe even Michael, who had his own wine company. What I really found, it was overall like a really boring season and a really horrifying season. But what I really enjoyed was the way that the producers decided to fuck over all of the people who came on the show in order to promote their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Big Ed came on and Big Ed was was like, I'm going to use this in order to become a celebrity. I'm going to make myself look like the sad guy that nobody wants to fuck because of his whole thing. And so people are going to feel sorry for me and people are going to love me. And basically the producers were like, no, fuck you. We're going to make you look like the horrible person that you are. Mm-hmm. And they also did this exact same thing with Ash. Where Ash was like, I'm going to come here. I'm going to advertise my life coaching business or whatever that fuck that was. Oh my God, his dating coaching. Yes. And they made him also look like an absolute scammer. And so I think basically I'm at this point now where I care so much less about the romances and so much more about the, I guess, like imagined relationships between the cast members and the producers. I don't think I've ever described any of the relationship. Actually, I will take that back. I was going to say, I don't think any of the relationships on the show are actually romances. The one couple who I truly think love each other are Jenny and Sumit. I think, I think they legitimately love each other. And it's so weird because they are one of the most far-fetched stories. You know, he catfished her and then revealed that he wasn't a catfish. And then she decided she loved him anyway. There's a huge age gap. His parents don't want them to be together and they're still fighting for it. And it sounds like they've been fighting for this even before the show started airing. So I'm like, I think you really actually like each other. 
But everyone else aside from that, I don't think there's any love in any of these couples. I think they also love each other, but I think this is like my completely projected read on their relationship. I think that they are both people who have to feel like they're the victims of any situation. Mm -hmm. And so the reason why their relationship works for them is because Jenny can play the victim of like Indian culture and Sumit can play the victim of his parents and right. societal convention or whatever. And so I think that particular dynamic really works for them. They're a modern day Romeo. <laughs> <laughs> They're Ugh. not. They're the furthest thing from that. And I think like Blake maybe also falls in that category as well. Blake, the guy who was with Jasmine from Finland, because he had like a burgeoning music career. Yes. And yeah. they even had one of his performances. Yeah, and with the, the label. Producers, it was all about the label. Yeah, and the producers made them, like, absolutely fucking stupid. Yes, I, I completely agree. So then what? how do you feel, though, when those people then get invited back for things like B90 Strikes Back or, you know, the, the reactive shows? I feel like, to me, that's the producers saying, we don't like you, but we acknowledge that you're good TV and we're going to let you back as a byproduct. I don't watch any of that stuff. I don't watch them either, but I see them on there. And I'm like, they've got to be getting paid a little bit for that. And it keeps them somewhat in this kind of 90-day ecosystem. I think it makes them relevant, but I think it's one of those things also where it's someone like hurling tomatoes at them, I assume, most of the time, right? And so you're basically watching somebody respond to having tomatoes hurled at them. And I guess I understand the appeal of that, but I guess if I'm also working within my, again, like completely possibly imagine the framework of an antagonistic relationship between the cast members and the producers, then first you have like the sadistic humiliation of like the cast member. And then I feel like at least half the time when someone tries to defend themselves, even if they're innocent, they automatically look like an asshole because they're already like really riled up by whatever, and then they're going to start returning insults at like some complete stranger, an anonymous stranger in this case. And so I don't think that they can really come off looking good. I think, yeah, I, I would say, I've seen, I, I always see this sort of little tags before, right, that says, oh, B90 or whatever, and they'll show one clip of it. And some of the people do have decent zingers, but I feel like it's the people who are being validated by the Twitter comments or whatever that they're, you know, it's the, um, oh God, why all of their, there's so many of them that their names escape me. It's the couple, it's the, it was the first same sex couple, the one, the girl from Australia. Oh, Stephanie and Erica. Yes. And so she was basically being told, she was being supported. And, and I was like, yeah, okay, you, lo- you come out of this looking better than you did possibly on the show, which is a good thing. Which one? Erica got to respond. And I feel like Erica was really, that, w- that was another one where clearly Stephanie was there to promote her YouTube channel. Right. And, and I don't think and Erica was- so terrible. Awful. I don't think Erica was 100% innocent in it, but I think- Stephanie was the villain of- of that storyline. Absolutely. I do want to talk, you said you don't watch the spinoffs, but you have seen The Family Chantel, which is, <laughs> please, I am not, I can't, well, I can't stand them. So please tell me what has compelled you to watch that. Oh, I, so many reasons. So first of all, you know about like the big fight, right? At the table. Yes. Yeah. So I kept looking for that and it turned out it was on The Family Chantel. So I ended up having to watch at least a part of it, right? But I think what's really fascinating about, oh God, there's so many things. 
I think part of like what was really fascinating about the family Chantel is you have this very middle class black family from Atlanta go down to the DR and basically thumb their noses down at like Pedro's family. Mm-hmm. So like first you have this relatively rare portrait of black xenophobia, which is not how we generally view American xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Already that's interesting to me. Second, <laughs> Pedro's family and Chantal's family are both just toxic monsters. They are and the most arrogant people. <laughs> yes. And, but like on both sides, they're mm-hmm. so completely awful. And so I really enjoyed, you know, it's like a Godzilla versus Mothra. Yeah. No one decent is being hurt here. Like they're mm-hmm. all awful. And so I don't have to feel bad about them going at each other because they're all awful. And I think like Chantel's family kept reaching newer and newer depths in their xenophobia, like the further the season went along. (laughs) But Pedro's family, the way that they responded was also just morally heinous. And so it was, I don't know, it was like kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the schadenfreude of witnessing other people's pain. And as you said, they are not great people. And so you don't feel so bad about it. Do you think that Pedro and Chantal should stay together? The other thing about Chantal and Pedro is that they're kind of hot, right? Especially for like... It's, for the show, yeah, over. I think they are one of the more conventionally attractive couples. She looks like she's going to tip over all the time, though. Like, all the work she's had <laughs> done is so unnecessary. Like, she was very pretty before, but now she's just sort of gone too far. I think, like, part of my interest in the family Chantal is that they're all really awful, but you can see the producer's fingerprints on so much of the show. Mm-hmm. And so part of the fascination for me, is to try to see what new deaths they will go to in hurting their own family for the sake of the show. That sounds awful. There's like one scene I'm it's like- It's because it is awful. <laughs> <laughs> There's like one scene I always go back to, which is that like Chantal has this sister named Winter. And at the time, Winter had this boyfriend who seemed very sweet. And he was like very obviously camera shy and was already very hesitant about being on the show. Chantal and her mom hire a private detective into Winter's boyfriend. And they find out that he has a second child that he never told Winter about even though he was supposedly on the verge of asking Winter to marry him. And so the fact that Chantal and her mom decided for the show, they were going to not only ruin Winter's life, but also do it in front of cameras and ruin the reputation of this guy that they were thinking about bringing into the family as like a brother-in-law or a son-in-law. I mean, it sounds like let alone there's a kid involved who's collateral damage here, right? A totally innocent kid whose parent is on the show that they don't have. That's Wow, that is terrible. And so the dynamic of the family Chantal is that both Chantal's family and Pedro's family are constantly like, we have the moral high ground. But the actuality is that none of them have the high ground, which I think is sort of like what makes it funny because they have no idea how disgusting they are. But I think that like, if I'm being a little bit more lighthearted, maybe I have sort of some issues, I think like uh, unresolvable issues with my own in-laws. 
<laughs> and I think that watching someone like Pedro deal with Chantal's family or vice versa, it's almost comforting because my family in law attention is stupid and annoying, but it will never be as stupid and annoying as what those people are going through. If I'm being honest, that's probably like part of why I'm watching. That's a lot of the reason why we watch reality TV in general, I think, right? Is because we, we know there's a lot of heavy crafting to it, but we still see people who, I'm not gonna say look and feel like us, you know, because especially representation is a whole different story. <laughs> but there are characters who aren't, you know, unless you're watching like a Housewives, they aren't always the rich and famous, right? They're supposed to be middle class or even lower class or more average citizens going through interpersonal struggles on reality TV. Like that is what I think draws us to it. But it's not our families and it's not our struggles. So we feel better about ourselves and we, are, we allow ourselves to enjoy it. As opposed to if like that was going on in our lives, we'd be miserable all the time. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you are facing down the barrel of something as terrifying and as dispiriting as online dating the only thing that you could watch to make you feel better about yourself is watching 90 day fiance like this is why i watch (laughs) i'm on the road to death alone with cats and so i watch 90 day fiance and there have been times when i go do i need to expand my like radius and include tunisia or something like that you know because i know i'll hook someone from there Have you ever considered putting yourself on an international dating app? Only because I would want to go on the show as a byproduct, but I think I love the show (laughs) too much to pollute it with my presence. Wait, you would be willing to go on the show? No, absolutely not. Okay. No. But someday it might get that bad. I might hit like a Darcy or Stacey age. (laughs) Or um, I might hit a Jenny age and go... Well, it's time to start dating internationally like that. Time for a 30-year-old. Yep. Speaking of Darcy and Stacey, do you watch them at all? Or are you only, have you only watched Family Chantel? I have watched the first episode and I have watched the last episode. Oh, interesting. Well, because I found out that Darcy got engaged. And so I wanted to see what was up. But after I saw the first episode, I just like, oh, sorry. Reddit had told me that Darcy's proposal was really sad. And so, sorry, like, I wanted to watch what happened. Um, <laughs> but the show is like, even for the Sanders of 90 Day Fiance, it was too boring to watch. It's a lot of nothing. Yeah. And I think the thing that fascinates me is the fact that they're twins and the fact that the show, I think, goes out of its way, especially in the first few episodes, to not help us identify which is which. And I think it goes out of its way to actually try and confuse us as to which is which, because it's before their relative partners show up. And so there's just a lot of scenes of them talking at each other. And I think it's a lot of long shots. They're on like a tennis court at one point. And it does, it could easily put a lower third and say like Darcy Stacy. But it didn't do that. And so I was just like, wow, you're really trying to set up how similar these two are. And they are to a degree. And then you, I got sucked in and started watching a bunch of them. And you start to see the differences between them and be able to tell them apart. But it was just a, a interesting, I guess, sort of study in twins it, that had nothing necessarily to do with the 90 day content part of it. But I was just like, wow, you two are, because they've had plastic surgery together. They really gone out of their way to try and hold on to this twin identity. And, and I find them, they're just so, they're so breathy, first of all. <laughs> they, they all, they talk in a very weird just mm, size and well I guess just I can't you know it's gonna be what it's gonna be and I just I'm I'm fascinated by them I think a little bit more than they deserve to be fascinated by I think that's right we are gonna take a quick break and be right back do you have a favorite couple to watch or that I like either uh do I so one of my favorite couples of all time is Danielle and Mohammed. 
their story was just wild. And I felt bad watching that one. And then I stopped feeling bad because at a certain point, she should have just kind of admitted defeat and accepted that she got scammed. But she just doubled down and she went for it. And I have to kind of admire her resilience in this scenario, possibly to her own detriment. I think in terms of like a couple that I think are actually pretty well matched, I think Melanie and Navarre got like a pretty good edit Mm -hmm. uh, on their season and I like their whole vibe and Navarre sort of seems maybe a little bit too good to be true, but I thought they came out looking pretty good. They got got like a weird web series spinoff, which I feel like was an attempt to be, I didn't watch it, but I feel like it was an attempt to see, are they worthy of following in maybe like a family Chantel type thing? Like, I feel like TLC is always constantly looking for who can we spin out of the show. And that's why all these little incubator shows happen around it. There are nine different spinoffs, it turns out. There are certain train wreck couples I've really enjoyed watching. I think Molly and Luis is one of them because it was so clear that they were a bad match. And then when Luis had his like owl freak out or like supposed freak out, basically it was just gaslighting Molly. Yeah. That was like one of the most memorable scenes I have ever seen on that show. <laughs> I think like Colt and Larissa, like I really like take your eyes off of. This is bad, but I really loved watching Eric and Lita or Leda yeah. because- Oh yeah, that one was really interesting. I think that like Leda basically, at least on Reddit, has like the reputation as being the worst person on 90 Day Fiance ever. Really? Which I don't know if it's like necessary. I guess it depends on what you're evaluating in terms of worst person. <laughs> yes. But I think like it's so rare that we get these (laughs) representations Mm -hmm. of really scumbag Asian women. Yep. And I love that there was like this example of one. She didn't want Eric to pay child support for his kids. She was really interesting because I agree with her in that she kept saying, she kept citing, if I wanted to be in the US, I could afford to be in the US. I was very intrigued as to her motivation for being on the show that season or being with him even because she can afford better than that. She clearly came from a life that was by some standards better than that. And so what was she doing with this guy who was a total loser? Yeah, like he didn't seem her equal in any sense. And I couldn't understand the appeal there. And I was like, is she trying to be on TV? That's quite possible. But it it seemed like there were other methods for her to get almost anything in her life. And so why choose this? Yes. How do you feel when kids are involved? Because a lot of couples now are single parents or have kids. Like how does that as an audience member, does that impact your viewing experience? I hate it. I really wish that there was some way to like take kids completely out of the equation. It really upsets me when somebody says, oh, I'm going to, I think that's why a love story like Jenny and Sumit is like fun Mm -hmm. because Jenny's kids are like 30 or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if you're looking at someone like Tiffany, let's say Tiffany went to South Africa and she took her nine-year-old son with her. And mm-hmm. she was like, okay, we're, like, we're just going to go move to South Africa now. I hate it. I think the other thing I really hate is the whole thing with Devin and Jihoon 
completely depresses me because Devin has already come out on Instagram. And I did like, see that. I That is the one thing I spoiled for myself this season. <laughs> yeah, she was like, we're no longer a couple. And so basically, I don't know how often Jihoon is going to be able to see his son anymore. And so I think when anything like that is involved, it's too depressing because it's too real. I don't watch this show because of like it's heartwarming factor I want to see like what kind of I, I want to see like how people are so messed up by their own self delusions that they put themselves into these crazy situations that's what I like about the show yeah I think that what that's what makes like a cult in Larissa where they're well actually no Larissa has kids I always forget that <laughs> that she has kids that you know she we never see which I don't think is a bad thing but she does have collateral damage potentially yeah but as long as they're not like collateral damage of like the show directly Right. Like that's so much better than all the ones we've to, like, seen on. I know. I wor- I worry. And people get so sensitive about judging parents. And I'm like, no, I'm not a parent. I can't make their decisions for them. I don't know their lives aside from what's presented to me on this beautiful silver platter of TLC. But this seems like a bad idea. I think Paul and Karini are like another one where I'm just like, Oof. this is not going to end well. Someone is going to probably never see their kid again, or they'll see them like once every five years at most. For like more of a train wreck couples, there are like some couples that have managed to stay together, but I don't think that the batting average for couples staying together forever on the show is very high. Yeah. And so the involvement of children is it's too depressing. Are there any couples that you've seen that you wish we'd catch up with more? Because a lot of them get to go on What Now or Happily Ever After and some just sort of disappear. Whenever people get off the show, I'm very happy for them. Um, <laughs> Fair. I think that said, I want to see where Rebecca and Ziad go. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what happens with Kalani and Asuelu. Oh, I legitimately though. worry about them. Like, they are someone who I feel very worried. Like, I, I, I don't find their storyline enjoyable anymore because I'm like, oh, this is real. This is a very stressful. And I think part of it's because we're also seeing a lot of their stuff from quarantine. That's where the production caught up to the real world of issues that are impacting us all. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also want to know what happened with Avery and Omar. Because I think that she's still here. I don't know, but he's still in Syria. Yeah, that's got to be a tough one. Did you, so I, this, this made me think of, did you watch the quarantine no. sort of mini- that was fascinating because there were people who were on it who I hadn't seen in a very long time and I'd forgotten about and their actual storylines weren't that great or that memorable, which is partially, I think, the reason why we never saw them again on anything. But their quarantine stories were very interesting. There was one girl in particular, um, Courtney, from before the 90 days. She was supposed to meet up with some Instagram guy, which never is a good sign. And then we followed up with her during the quarantine spinoff. And she was with some German dude. And it felt like she was a hostage in Florida. And he was, she was like a, a brand model for his menstrual cup company. Mm. And they were in this house. She'd only meant to be there for a weekend or something like that. And then the stay-at-home order happened. And so she's just sort of trapped in this house. And you can see them bickering and it it literally felt like a hostage situation where I was like, does she need to like blink twice at the production crew who's remotely controlling this to be like, get me out of here because they were fighting and it just did not seem like 
I think they had very different expectations of what their relationship was at that point. And she was sort of being a pretty girl and trying to take advantage of him. And he was totally letting it happen because he had perks out of it too. And then suddenly they're trapped in this house together. And it goes from being like a fun flirtation for a weekend to being, this is your life for the next however many weeks. You don't know when this is going to end. They had a very transactional seeming relationship that got very ugly very quickly. But I was like, oh, this is much more interesting than you trying to chase some dumb Instagram model that we didn't think was real. Like I, this is a very (laughs) unique situation. I feel like maybe she should try dating guys who are not models because I don't think dating models has worked out really well for her. No, well, the, but the German guy was not a model. He was oh, okay. a very average looking business person who apparently was in the business of menstrual cups, which I find maybe an odd business to be in as a man, just because it's not a product that you can use. <laughs> so how, you know, quality control, like how, how can you, anyway, that was, that was just one that stood out to me, me being like, oh, this is much more interesting than anything we've ever seen out of this girl. Hmm. I think that also sort of all of the fan fervor around the show is so built up that it's really easy to get sort of like the highlights without watching what have you. Mm-hmm. Like I already knew about like the Courtney and the German thing, German guy thing, or like I had like a loose idea of it. Right. Because I am on Reddit so much and I don't, I'm not like on Reddit generally. I'm only on Reddit for 90 Day Fiance. I was very surprised actually when you said you were on Reddit because I'm like, Reddit is a scary place to me. (laughs) I'm actually in like the process, I think, of trying to figure out how to stop watching the show. Interesting. Why? I think that the show has this very weird relationship to abuse, basically. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I, I think that like there's on the one hand, the sort of minimization of abuse. And then on the other hand, there's using abuse as spectacle. Mm-hmm. And both sides of that really make me uncomfortable. I think that if you go back to like season six, for example, with Steven and Olga, and Steven is constantly badgering her right after her C-section. That was so bad, yeah. He likes nicer to her and to like walk faster. And then he keeps making comments about maybe he'll just kidnap the baby and mm-hmm. take the baby to the US where Olga can't follow him because they're in Russia. I remember just being so angry at that whole storyline but also being really angry that like TLC would show this without sort of like a better larger context and I think on the one hand you can say obviously you figured out what the storyline was about and so don't assume the audience is really dumb on the other hand it is a case of sort of normalizing abuse right Mm -hmm. or like at least like desensitizing yourself to it a little bit and so I think that like since that season, or I guess like really before with George and Anfisa, there's this constant delivery system of using essentially like domestic abuse as hijinks. And it makes me very uncomfortable. And I think that the other thing that the show does is they will bring in people who have rap sheets for domestic violence, and then they will pass it off as something nowhere near as bad on the show, and then sort of try to get you to root for them romantically. I think Paul fits into this category. Okay, I was just gonna say, is Paul the example here? Because I can't remember anybody else with that, but that doesn't mean, oh yeah, that's right. Because Jeffrey, and then now they're doing this like really weird thing where when enough of the fandom figures out what is happening with a cast member, they will just take them off from the tell-all. 
So if you noticed last season, Jeffrey and Varya didn't end up at the tell-all mm -hmm. because so much of Jeffrey's rap sheet had come out in rather than Instagram and things like that. And I think they've already announced that Jihoon and Devin are not going to be on this season's tell-all because apparently Devin was making allegations that like Jihoon was abusive Ooh. and... I don't know. She seems to have some problems with honesty, but also like hashtag believe women. I right. don't know like where to go exactly with this. But like they need to do fucking better quality control of casting. And so I think, I don't know, the show's making me very uncomfortable. Do you think that the producers should be intervening more often? Because I, I had forgotten about, I think I consumed so much of it that I forget, which is disconcerting, but I had forgotten about season six and I'd forgotten about the whole thing with, you know, the Steven. baby. Yeah. And and I, I remember I'm just thinking back and texting friends who were watching it live and just being like, this guy, this guy is such a monster. And so, yes, they've given him a platform, but when he starts to behave in that way, should the producers be intervening or is that not their job to do? What are your thoughts on that kind of interference? I mean, it's not really like a fair question to ask, right? Like on the one hand, they're not documentarians. They're right. reality show producers. They're like literally like producing the reality that we see anyway so mm -hmm. like what difference does it make if they interfere or not but I think also on the other hand I don't know like they sort of have a vested interest in letting whatever crazy thing happen happen because they want to get the good shit right and so I think that they're incentivized to Poorly. Their incentives are toward all of these people suffering because it makes for better reality TV. Yeah, I think there is, though, a line where, no, they are not documentarians, they're not journalists, they're not held by any sort of integrity. No. But, as you said, this is something that is turning you off from watching the show, and I wonder if they had intervened and you had seen them be like, hey, you can't do, you know, that seems like a bad idea. Because there are times when we see their presence more actively, right? We'll hear the producer ask a question. That, as audience members and, quote, loyal fans, makes me feel more comfortable about continuing to support the show that versus them not doing it. And at a certain point, something so heinous might happen that people will go, I can't watch this show anymore because they allowed this to happen. And so I do wonder, is it to the benefit of the narrative of the literal show's presence to potentially intervene more? I mean, the better thing to do is just not cast these people and give them a spotlight. That's basic. But when they do, sometimes you don't know these things. I think there was something out there that Karini's postpartum depression after Pierre was bad enough for producers to intervene mm -hmm. and get her mental help. I don't know if that's true, but that's like a thing I think I read somewhere. But I think they just need to be more careful. Mm -hmm. I think partly because the reality show audience is so ravenous and really feel this entitlement toward going into the lives of whoever is cast. And so I'm not saying that that's Right. But I think it's just going to happen no matter what anyway. Right. And so if only for sort of helping to foster the trust between the show and the audience, I think they need to be more careful about who they bring onto the screen. But like when these stories come out about like Paul's rap sheet or Jeffrey's rap sheet, it's depressing to me that TLC is sort of gambling on using or exploiting the pathological personalities of people they know to be capable of really terrible behavior and then using that in order to basically like make a show 
and sort of put this weird gloss over like their weird behavior so that it becomes palatable to the public. Do you watch any other reality shows? <laughs> I watch RuPaul's Drag Race. And I mean, spectacular. I have watched all seasons, all three seasons of Selling Sunset somehow. I think because <laughs> of quarantine. That's fair. That's a, that's a, that's a quarantine watch. Yeah. Do you think that there is anything that either scripted or any other reality shows could learn from 90 Day Fiancé? Oh, I hope not. I think 90 Day Fiancé is really interesting and like think one of the reasons why I have gotten into it as much as I have because I don't think that people really think about citizenship privilege very much Mm -hmm. and it's one of these things that people on the show particularly the men are really taking advantage of right Mm -hmm. they're sort of dangling this promise and I think that one of the things that well one of the schadenfreude reasons that I really like the show is that so much of the show kind of revolves around these like very loser men who want to get a woman who find themselves entitled to a woman who is like much younger and much more beautiful mm-hmm. and because they can't get it with their resources and whatever they're working with in the U.S. they want to go abroad but as much as, and so like, I think it sort of tackles something that like, we don't really think about. But I think that the other really fascinating thing about the show is that to me, this is a show about declining empire. You have these men who are basically exploiting this idea of like, America as the land of milk and honey. Mm -hmm. And yet, almost invariably, when the foreigner comes to the U.S., they're shocked by how much they're not living in wealth. They're shocked by these, like, shabby apartments, these in-the-middle-of-nowhere towns. And I think so much of the dynamic of the show is them being really disappointed by what America is. I think Colt and Larissa is sort of like a That was going to be my example. example. Yeah. I mean, Las Vegas isn't Knoxville, Tennessee. There's stuff there. There's maybe some even world-class stuff there. But if you're just a civilian living in Las Vegas, it's just a 120-degree desert town, and Colt has a car with no AC. And even though he has, like, a good job, he lives in, like, what, some really cardboard two-bedroom condo or whatever? With his mother. With his mom. With his... (laughs) Terrible mom. Yes. And so (laughs) I I think like the show fairly gets a lot of criticism for spreading xenophobia because Mm -hmm. they're always like, is this foreigner here for the right reasons or whatever? Which is like a stupid question always. But I think what entices me about the show is that there's this sort of laying bare that for a lot of people, America isn't that great a place to live in. And I think that that whole dynamic is always really fun to watch for me. Because I think in a lot of cases, um, even if the foreigner is not super impressed by America, mm-hmm. my guess would be, at least living standards-wise, it's a upgrade from where they were coming from in, I would guess, like a majority of the cases. But on the other hand, (laughs) you're lonely. The stuff around you is ugly or unimpressive. It's just, I don't know. It's like the hallmarks of like a lot of American life. 
the most interesting thing for me about the other way is like the couples who you see go on there, or the, the Americans who go out to these other countries, I think they suddenly develop this sense of like a jingoism when they get there. And they're people who I think think of themselves as very enlightened because they're like, I'm going to go to a foreign country. I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, so worldly. Yeah. Like I can totally survive in. And I think the perfect example is this last week was Ari. So Ari is, I feel like she is someone who absolutely prides herself on not conforming to what society thinks should happen. And then she gets there and she's talking about the car pricing and just so upset by that the cars that are 20 years old cost 17,000 US dollars. And she keeps going, well, in America, well, in America, well, in America. And I'm just like, okay, well, you're not in America. That's one of the other things I tend to really enjoy about the show. Because you see someone like Lisa, who goes to Nigeria. Um, Baby girl Lisa? (laughs) Yes, or Ari, or whoever. Like, they always have, like, the same scenario where the producers have the participants go to the bathroom and then be horrified by the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And it's always one of those things I have to laugh at because... To me, at least, the fault doesn't lie in their disgust. The fault lies in bringing a camera crew over in order to like film your reaction to this toilet. Because if I were in that scenario, I've traveled a lot, but there's sort of like a visceral disgust when you're not presented with this perfect porcelain white clean toilet. And (laughs) I feel like it would be one of those things where I would scrunch my face and kind of go, whoa. Yeah. But at least there's not like a fucking camera crew to like record how ethnocentric I am being. So yeah. (laughs) What do you you think of the power balance that's sort of starting to shift? Because I do think one of the things that they're sort of figuring out is like there's going by sort of quote traditional gender roles. There is that we've seen more predatory men, etc. But now we're starting to see same sex couples pop up right? We've had the one bi couple and now we've got the same sex couple from the other way. Do you think they're just going to be a novelty on the show or do you think that we're actually going to start seeing more? I mean, I guess I hope that we do, although it will be very interesting to see how they go about this. I think that unfortunately, at least like in my estimation, it's been too bad that both couples, both same sex couples on the show's have been kind of repellent. Really? Think, you find the couple this season repellent? Armando, Armando and- Armando uh, is okay. And obviously yeah. all of the stuff that's going on with his family is like very sad. Mm-hmm. But I find Kenny insufferable. Interesting. How do you not? I He's like been speaking with like a man in Mexico and like building plans. He sold his goddamn house. He couldn't squeeze in a Duolingo lesson here and there. I think he is as repulsive as every other person on the show. And so I don't find him any more or less so. I think I find him very watchable because he has played into exactly what you said, right? He is somebody who went into a bathroom, freaked out about you know the lack of flushable toilet. And I'm like, first of all, sir, you have the ability not to sit on that toilet. Like you, you have the plumbing <laughs> to not have to deal with that. You try being a, you know, somebody who can't do that and dealing with a toilet like that. Like, go go to hell. But the the other thing about him, I don't know, I just I'm find sorry, him- I'm sorry, do you sit on every toilet? No, I won't sit on any of those toilets. 
I squat. I do the like hover. Okay. Yeah, okay. but that's what I'm saying. He doesn't have to hover. He most likely, unless he has to take a dump. But if he just has to pee, he doesn't actually have to touch the toilet. Whereas if you are somebody who does pee sitting down, because I don't want to gender it completely, like chances are you're avoiding that, like your life depends on it. And that does require a certain amount of physical strength. <laughs> but anyway, so my, my thing about him is I find him as watchable, if not as much. I do think there's a novelty in them being a same-sex couple. And I think it's interesting that instead of, I feel like normally the power dynamic would be asking Armando to come to the US, you know, and it'd be this sort of, there's like an age gap there, there's a wealth gap there, but the fact that he goes to Mexico is interesting to me and I'm waiting for like a shoe to drop there. I think that there's so there's such a particular couple. Kenny has such a specific story. Armando has such a specific story. They have a daughter. They have that crazy age gap. And so they have never struck me as sort of like a generalizable same-sex couple, if that makes sense. They've mm-hmm. always seemed very like Kenny and Armando to me. And so I don't think I'm really getting the novelty specifically of their same sexness. I mean, obviously, there's sort of all of the family drama because of Armando's sexuality. Mm-hmm. But sort of like this giant worry that like Mexico will be less hospitable. But I think that because they have such idiosyncratic personalities, I think that like I'm much more attuned to who they are as individuals as opposed to who they are as a same-sex couple Mm -hmm. maybe as someone who is straight that's sort of like a privilege where I don't have to get rub sweats about like how how is TLC like depicting the same-sex couple and so I acknowledge that like I don't have quite the same level of emotional investment there but I think they're like really weird yeah and also Kenny is like really fucking annoying I don't find Armando weird I find Armando to be like a perfectly almost boring except for his sexuality maybe <laughs> character but I, I think the burden of representation is a tough one because I don't think the first same-sex couple went well did you buy that both Stephanie and Erica were queer not at all which is why I was upset that they were the first representation of it did you think both of them were not queer or did you I think that both of them probably are somewhere on the sexual spectrum but I think as far as going to be like the first same-sex couple they picked a more middle America friendly you know people who are dabbling in their first so so I feel like Erica probably identifies more in the queer community but Stephanie felt like she was dipping her toe in the lady pond for the attention which is maybe that's not true but that is sort of how it came off and which was kind of upsetting as opposed to these other two who have to make this huge sacrifice in order to be together in Kenny and Armando. The whole coming out thing on, on um, Stephanie and Erica's season was a little weird to me from Stephanie's side in that she wouldn't do it. Oh, But she's yeah. going on this TV show where her mom sees her with this other girl. It's, it's, it just didn't quite match up to me in terms of intentions. I can see that. I think there was one part that I was discussing with a gay friend where Stephanie got really upset with Erica because Erica was still friends with people she had slept with. Oh yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> my gay friend was like, oh, so Stephanie has like literally never been in queer circles before, where like people are just friends with people that they slept with. And I was like, oh yeah. And obviously like you can be queer without like living in queer circles. Mm-hmm. But it sort of, I guess like adds to that widely held impression that Stephanie didn't actually want to sleep with a woman. Yeah, and and that's not to say that she's not pansexual and that she's not attracted to the person instead of 
But I just, I think her whole thing and their dynamic felt inauthentic in terms of that. And so it was kind of a bummer that they were meant to be the first any sort of queer representation on the show. I did enjoy Erica Pear. I did too. I th- Erica was a very watchable person to me. I, th- I think she was young and uh, I think that a lot of their relationship, they were both young, obviously, but a lot of their relationship drama just felt- came from being like, you two just have not had relationships and you are immature and you're having a dumb fight right now. And in 10 years, you would look back at this and be like, wow, we're idiots. They sure are. They sh- everyone is. Everyone <laughs> on that show is. Well, any parting thoughts on 90 Day? Other than that... Aside from the fact that you might stop watching it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to do it because I feel like it's so enmeshed in certain parts of my life. And now I feel like I am getting so many good memes off of it. And I like sending the memes to a friend and sort of bonding over that. And so it's, yeah, it's hard to extricate I think that, like, the one storyline that, like, I was initially extremely bored by and now I'm pretty interested in is the Brittany Yazan one. And so I can't wait to see how this will end. Because, like, initially it seemed pretty obvious that Brittany was actually never going to marry Yazan. Mm-hmm. But now I guess stakes are higher because Yazan, according to weird, sketchy websites and also, I guess, partly on the show, now claims that like his dad fired him from his job and like told him to get out and so he's functionally homeless because of his desire to marry Brittany. I do wonder what's going on there between the two of them, how genuine it is because it doesn't seem like she particularly wants to live over there. Nope. He is fights with her a lot and you know they don't seem to have a great loving relationship. I maybe we aren't seeing that side of it. So why are they both fighting so hard to aside from to be on the show? is the question. I think I question a lot of people's motives on the show because of that, right? I'm always like, are you just here to be on the show? Are you just here to be on the show? I think that makes the one thing that has no reason to want to be on the show and has given us comedy gold, the MVP of the franchise, which is Jihoon's translator. (laughs) So, it's so good. So good. (laughs) Jihoon's terrible, terrible completely non-functioning translator. It's just like, why, where did they get this thing? Why are they not using Google or something like that? There are so many times on the show when there's a language barrier that I don't understand why people aren't using more of the tools available to anybody. There are certainly ways around it. And I do wonder if it's active producer interference being like, no, you can't do that. Like Paul and Karini and their stupid texting back and forth for the longest time. At least uh, that was like, but at least I was like, okay, at least you're using a service. You know, at least you are trying to communicate with each other. I can't believe you just defended Paul and Karini. I can't either. Conversations. At least they were trying. have through Google Translate. As opposed to, oh my God, do you, the bee couple, the beekeepers? Oh. I love them. Apparently their honey is very good, oh, according I that. to the randoms on Reddit. I believe that. I, they are a couple of us like, oh, I think you're actually here because you like each other. They were so boring for the longest time. And then they like really pulled that storyline through like at the very end of the season. I was impressed. Yeah. I was impressed by the producers. Who's the other? There was one other translator one that was the funniest thing in the world. It was, he's so creepy. He's the old guy and he thought the woman wasn't real. Oh, 
David and Lana. Yes. Mmm, David. <laughs> and the fact that this man thinks that you can only message through this site and that you can only do these things and that her email was broken and all this stuff. And it's just, it's one of those things where I have, I guess there are people out there who are just that stubborn and deluded about these relationships because I don't, there is a certain level of that that you could manufacture and there's a certain level of that that was all him. I mean, another perfect example of Americans thinking that everyone wants to come live in America. And so it would be so easy to get like some random Ukrainian hottie who is 40 years younger than him to come over and she'd do it straight away as opposed to her being like, I actually have a pretty good life as like, a professional scammer. Yeah, I have tons of idiots like you on the line who, oh, and the other one is um, Caesar. David took the, the crown from Caesar in terms of just absolute deluding themselves into thinking that these people are real people. That's the, that's, sometimes those storylines make me sad because I'm like, I feel like Caesar was truly maybe not in a capacity, like equipped to deal with that situation. David, I'm like, you have money to spare. Like you go ahead and spend it there. But Caesar, I was like, oh, that... Oh, you're working real hard for this and you're not going to get anything out of it. She's not real. She was real. I know, but she's not. She's, she's, <laughs> she's not real in that she'll, she's never going to materialize in his life. Correct. Yeah. The dream. The dream of my day. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Do you want to plug anything? Sure. I have two things to plug. One is my own podcast, all about Amadovar, about the movies of Pedro Amadovar. One of the great international auteurs working today. So about the opposite of 90 Day Fiance in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> yes, although if it turned out that Pedro Almodovar was secretly a 90 Day Fiance fan, I would not be that shocked. I wouldn't either. He loves the drama. He loves the drama. <laughs> he does love the drama. The other thing that I have to plug is that I guess in about five days, the Criterion edition of Parasite is coming out, and I wrote the Criterion essay for that. And so that is the other thing. Check it out. From Criterion to 90 Day Fiance. What a, what a, and to, to Amadovar Criterion 90 Day, you can do it all. <laughs> a huge thanks to, and a huge thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or would even consider subscribing. Thanks again, and we'll catch you at the next one.